And the high road is not choosing between the good and the bad. Anybody can do that. You can do that without God. But the high road is choosing between the good and the best, and always choosing the best. Welcome back to the Baptist Friends Podcast with Dr. Clarence Sexton, where we gather around truth, friendship, and world evangelism. Good morning. Good to see all of you. Thank you for joining us today. It's a real delight to try to be a, an encouragement to you. I never, th- I never think when we assign the subject matter that it's going to be something that is a highlight for everyone, but I want to give a little explanation what I'm trying to do. It's, it's my firm conviction that the greatest thing going on in the whole world is what God's people are doing. I'm not saying that from my perspective. I really believe I can say that from what I know to be true about God, from what I find in the Bible, that the Lord is more concerned about what his people are doing and will be moved to action more readily over what his people are doing than what's going on in any other people group in the world. I... um, I know that God's work is the real thing. Everything else is an imitation. I've thought a lot about this. I've thought a lot about meeting people who are Islamic anywhere in the world, and they will say that they're a part of the nation of Islam. The nation of Islam. And uh, they have imitated the idea that There's one nation and all Islamic people belong to that nation of Islam. But I'm going to show you something from God's word that identifies God's people. If you have your Bible, we're going to pray in just a moment. If you have your Bible, it'll be open at the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Hope everyone can hear well and all is coming through properly. So let me, let me pray with you, then we're going to read the scriptures here. Father, we thank you for this day and for what can be accomplished as we seek to follow after thee. Guide us by thy spirit. Help us not to create things or attempt to create things, but to discover in your word the things that already exist that are real, that are true. Guide us, we pray, and we shall praise thee for it. Amen. I was thinking of an article I shared with you one time that I got from uh, Thomas Jefferson and uh, what he said about what they were trying to do. And... Uh, In the spring of 1825, Thomas Jefferson penned a letter that explained the purpose of a document he had drafted in the summer of 1776. As the sage of Monticello, Jefferson answered letters from friends and foes, historians and biographers, anyone who sought his attention. This time he was writing to Harry or Henry Lee, light horse Harry Lee, They called him a hero 
of the American Revolution about his intent in drafting the Declaration of Independence. Now, I want you to listen to this. This is what Jefferson said. This was the object of the Declaration of Independence, not to find out new principles or new arguments never before thought of, nor merely to say things which had never been said before, but to place before mankind the common sense of the subject in terms so plain and firm as to command their assent and to justify ourselves in the independent stand we are compelled to take, neither aiming at originality of principle or sentiment, nor yet copied from any particular and previous writing, it was intended to be an expression of the American mind and to give to that expression the proper tone and spirit called by the occasion. Expressing the American mind, a term that he may have coined, was essential to Jefferson's career. And so he took great pride in believing that he had done so in imperishable terms. In other words, when he gave that document that we all as citizens of this country adhere to, he said he wasn't trying to say something new. He wasn't trying to say something never said before. He was saying the plain truth that people knew and that people could come to adhere to. Now, I, I want to put that in, in this frame. We are God's children. We don't have a monopoly on God, but God does have a monopoly on us. And I want to read something to you here from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 9. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a particular people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. So in the 10th verse of this second chapter, we are called the people of God. Now I have a question for you. Who are the people of God? This is a term that God has assigned us. He says, we are the people of God. Now think about that. Who are they? Who are they? How are they different from all other people on the earth, these people of God? I want you to get hold of this. So 
in the words of scripture, he says, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That doesn't mean that we're funny or odd. It means we belong. We belong. We belong to God. A peculiar people. That you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Which in time past were not a people but are now the people of God. You know, if you're a person who keeps up with current events, you may be very concerned about what the Chinese Communist Party is doing. But God is more concerned about what his people are doing than he is about what the Chinese Communist Party is doing. Now, I want you to hold these thoughts for just a moment. For example, I have a list of nations that we know have nuclear weapons. And we know now China not only has nuclear weapons, but they have these uh, supersonic missiles they can send around the earth that could carry nuclear weapons. And we're being puzzled in our own military about how we can keep up with this. And often we hear all these kinds of things going on, even other things that are current events and ideas, and so we get so involved in who has the weapons, who could use them against us, India and Pakistan with nuclear ability, and now um, the Afghans having access to things in Pakistan, Pakistan having nuclear weapons. And you begin to think about all these things and you wonder what's really important in the world, what's going on in our world. And the point I'm trying to make is that the people of God, the people God calls the people of God, get more attention from the Lord than anybody else on earth. What the people of God are doing is of greater concern to God than what any other people are doing. Now, here you are. You're a leader. You are a leader among the people of God. I've tried to say many times in these shepherd summits that the church you pastor is not graded by the Lord by its size but by its sort. What sort of church is it? What sort of church is it? Is it, is it the sort of church it is? But wherever it is, if it's a, a small group in a rural village, like the first church I pastored, it is still the people of God. And it may be some person or some group of people in some small rural place that God witnesses something going on that he chooses to bless and use that to bless all the people of God. 
we know that from what we know, the little that we know about history and how God has used certain people with two old ladies praying behind the Welch revival that touched the world or one young girl, maybe 16 years old, standing up to sing a song. This is historically accurate. And when she sang that song, it's as though the fire started in the Welch revival. So God is looking at his people to see what his people will do, how his people will call out to him. And you need to help your people, your congregation, understand their place among the people of God. And that's what it's all about. I want you to mark in your Bible these things God says, that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Think about that. We are called. We are strangers and pilgrims. We are to abstain from fleshly lust. And so God is dealing with his people. I want to read something to you. On December 26, 1941, a famous visitor came to speak to the joint session of Congress. It was only days after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and at least half of the United States Naval Fleet was sunk and was lying in the bottom of Pearl Harbor. Winston Churchill came to speak to a joint session of Congress. There was an embarrassing crowd there because it was just the day after Christmas and many of the congressional leaders were not even present. But when Churchill began to speak, this is what he made mention of. And I quote, what kind of people do they think we are? Is it possible that they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? As for the German forces, he was speaking about the Japanese, but as for the German forces, with proper weapons and proper organization, we shall beat the life out of the savage Nazis. These wicked men who have brought evil forces into play must know they will be called to terrible account if they cannot beat down by force the arms of the people they have assailed. In other words, Churchill says, what have they done? They've awakened us. And as they had awakened us, he said, do they not understand what kind of people we are? That we will never stop. We will persevere until we have teach, taught them a lesson that they will never forget. And, you know, finally, the Japanese did wake up to what they had done. The Nazis were taught a lesson by the Allied forces. Hitler finally supposedly killed himself just because a people were awakened 
And Churchill spoke to the joint session of Congress in the United States about who we are. Do they not know who we are? And I'm saying to you, God Almighty, God himself has said in his word, we are the people of God. Call to action. Ready, armed with the power of God's Holy Spirit, the weapons of our warfare, which are not carnal, but mighty. And this is our time to wage war against Satan and the enemies that have raised their ugly heads against us. You see, it's time the world fears the people of God and their march with the Lord into victory. And so I'm trying to bring this, this thought to you that we are the people of God. We are the people of God. And they, the people of God need a shepherd like you to arouse them, to get them to rise up for the battle that we're already in. We're already in the fight. And may God help us. So, what kind of people are we? As Churchill said to the joint session of Congress, he was speaking about military people and American people and the British people. I'm saying to you, what kind of people are we? The people of God. People ought to say, who, who do they think we are? But I think we need to say, who do we think we are? I want to ask you a question. Most of your pastors, who do you think you are? Who are you? This isn't some ragtag outfit. We're the people of God. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There's a power we have that no one else on earth has. And what is available to us is available to no one else on earth. Because we are the people of God. When you talk about your area, your community, your city, your neighborhood, remember that you are the people of God. And this needs to be taken into our hearts and preached and taught loud and clear. There's some things I'd like for you to write down. Would you please? Because I, I speak now not to be heard, but I speak to try to get you to repeat these things. I would love for you to tell your people who they are and identify with them. And let's remember this. The people of God begin with God. We begin with God. I want you to look at Genesis chapter 12. Would you please? Genesis chapter 12, to what the Lord says. And in Genesis chapter 12, remember God has always had a people. You're not some Johnny come lately. There's some religions that say, oh, our religion's older than your religion because your religion's only 2,000 years old. That's how ignorant they are. Our faith didn't start 2,000 years ago. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, but God has always had a people from the days of creation. So, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man. 
And the Bible says, Now the Lord has said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land which I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God says, I'm calling a man. And from that man, I'm raising up a people, creating a nation. And to them and through them, I'm going to make myself known to the whole world. To them and through them, I'm going to make myself known to the whole world. I want you to get those two words, to them and through them. And when we come to the same principle with the people of God, to them and through them, God wants to make himself known to the whole world. Remember the New Testament passage, what, what Peter wrote there and what he said of the Lord's people. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. And to them and through them, I'm going to make myself known to the whole world. You may be in San Antonio, Texas, or you may be in Providence, Rhode Island. It doesn't make a difference where you are. Has God found a people? And you are his people. And so he wants to his people to make himself known. How real is the Lord in your life? May I say, how real is the Lord in your church? How real is God's people? Have you confined God inside a building? Have you? He wants to make himself known to you and through you to the whole world. I repeat this. Some of you have heard this, but I repeat this. Charles Spurgeon was preaching. I wish I had the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit here and I'd take you to the page where he said it. But Spurgeon was preaching one day in London, England, and he said to the congregation, he said, there's a man in Washington, Georgia, in the United States, who has prayed a hole in heaven. And he was talking about Ian Bounds. And I've said this many times because Ian Bounds was pastoring a church in an out-of-the-way rural place. There wasn't a whole lot to it. It wasn't a place of great size, but God chose to use one of his people to influence people all over the world through what he preached and what he penned. Finally, it made its way and influence to the largest church in the English-speaking world, to the most influential preacher preaching the word of God that we know of in his day, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So I'm saying to you, it's not, it's not us. It's our identity with God. We are the people of God. God said to one man, I'm going to make you a blessing to the whole earth. Did you ever pray and ask God to make you a blessing to the whole earth? Did you ever pray and ask God to do something through your life to make you a blessing to the whole earth? That's the greatness of our God. 
God is able to do that. And so he says in his word, I'm going to make you a blessing. And all who bless you, I bless. You know the passage, but I'm saying God's people begin with God. Not all the people that you know are the people of God. Not all the people in your community are the people of God. There are people of God who are not in your church. There are people of God who identify with another church other than your church. They've truly been born again, and they're the people of God. But God does have a people, and he wants to work through those people to do a mighty work in the world. Let me give you another thing. The people of God are always being brought to the Lord. God is always doing the same thing with his people. In Exodus chapter 19, I want to read this to you. God has called Moses to lead his people out of Egyptian bondage. And as he's called him, he wants to bless and use them. But first he must bring them to himself. And the Bible teaches us in Exodus chapter 19, if you'd like to look there in Exodus chapter 19. In the third month, verse 1, in the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. And they were departed, for they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai, and it pitched in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mount. Verse 3. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto you, uh, unto the Egyptians, and I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. I want you to notice, he says, I have brought you unto myself. I've been a Christian since I was a teenager shortly before my 14th birthday. And God has been doing the same thing in my life all these years. I'm a pastor. I've been in the ministry now 54, going on 55 years. And God is doing the same thing in my life all these years. He brings me unto himself. When we get to the New Testament and see Jesus calling disciples, the very first thing he did was not witness to the whole world. The very first thing he did he did not go to Calvary and bleed and die for our sins. That's why he came, of course. But the first thing he did, the Bible says, he called men unto himself. He called men unto himself. That calling is on all of God's people. Now listen, don't get so fancy pants that you forget what we're all doing. Let your people know what God's doing in their life. Somebody said, well, I'm, Pastor, I can't believe I'm going through what I'm going through. They may say, I can't believe what's happened to me. And it's up to you, the man of God, to tell them what God is doing. What God is doing is he's working in those circumstantial things to bring them unto himself, to get them closer to him. So they have more of the mind of Christ and understand the ways of God. That's God's people. You know, I, I, I know this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. 
if God could just have his people awakened, what a mighty work could be done because God will work through them once he works to them and touch the whole world. That's where revival's coming. And so the people of God, who are they? They are the people who have been called to the Lord. People may tell you a hundred things that have happened to them. God's people need to say, this is what God's doing in my life, bringing me and teaching me and helping me to understand him. You have goals that are different from the goals you've ever had in your life. You have a, you have a purpose like you've never had in your life. You, you, you feel differently about your own life at home and family than you've ever felt because God has made a difference. The larger he's become in your life as he's called you to himself, the bigger difference he's making in the way you think and I think. That's what the people of God experience. Then I'll tell you another thing. The people of God are separated to the Lord. This is a forgotten doctrine. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, Paul wrote to Romans, said, Paul separated under the gospel of God. <coughs> he was separated under the gospel of God. But I'm going to take you to a classic passage in Exodus chapter 33. If you have your Bible with you there in Exodus chapter 33, let's begin with verse 12. And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray thee, if I found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight. And consider that this nation is thy people. This nation is thy people. Get that at the end of verse 13, that we're thy people. We're different from the Egyptians. We're different from the Canaanites. We're different from the Hittites. Prove to us that we're your people. And he said, this is a conversation with Moses and God. And he said, my presence shall go with thee. And I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, if thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. In other words, Lord, if you're not going with us, I'm not going. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? And here it is, right in the heart of verse 16. Don't ever forget it. So shall we be separated. I and thy people. For all the people from all the people that are upon the earth, we shall be separated. If you're in a room right now 
or if you're in a room tomorrow and the Lord Jesus comes again, only the people in that room who know the Lord will be separated to go with him in the rapture. But let's transfer that to these days when he hasn't come. We are separated by God's presence from all other people on the earth. You may be walking down the street in your city, and there could be 500 people walking down the streets. When my wife and I were working in the New York City area for all those years, we'd get on those crowded streets, and we'd get overwhelmed. We'd just be overwhelmed thinking about how few people truly know the Lord. But God does have a people, and his people are to be separated to him. And what he does, it's his presence that separates us. Let me say that again. It's his presence that separates us. We have to meditate upon that. We have to think about it and pray about it. But it's God himself that separates us. Moses said, listen again, he said in verse 16 of Exodus chapter 33, so shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And he said, thy presence going with us, thy presence going with us makes us separated from all of the people upon the earth. These are the people of God. I think we need to back up. I really do. I think we need to back up and help our people understand again in our churches that they are people who are separated to God. We have a purpose that's different from the rest of the community, from the rest of the world. We have a purpose different from all of that. We're here to make the Lord known. And that happens as he makes himself known in our lives. Let me give you something else about the Lord's people. Let's go to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus. I'm trying to take this, this way through the Bible, traveling through the Bible with you, that it might be easier for you to share it with other people. In Leviticus chapter 26, the Bible says, you shall make no idols nor graven image, neither rear you up a standing image, neither shall you set up any image of stone in your land to bow down unto it. For I am the Lord your God. I just can't read that passage without thinking about that visit it was actually Dr. Don Sisk and I visiting in a home on Madison Avenue in Patterson, New Jersey, and we went in the home, and the woman was so sick. We were visiting with her because she was sick. She was always sick. She'd go in the hospital. We'd think she's going to die. She'd get out of the hospital. She'd go back in the hospital. We'd think she's going to die. We'd visit her. So we were in her home visiting and praying with her. And we were in the front room of her house, and everywhere you could put something or sit something, she had an idol everywhere, a little Buddha here, something else here, everywhere. So Dr. Sis, who had been a missionary for a long time in Japan, recognized some of those idols. 
And we prayed for the woman. She was a Christian. And we prayed for her healing. When we left the house, Dr. Sis says, there's a real problem in that house. And I said, well, what is it? He said, all those idols. All those idols are for demons and false religions. She may not even know it, but they're created for false religion and idols and demons. And he said, she's never going to be well as long as all those things are in her home. So we decided to go back into her home. And we said to her, we're here because we care. And Dr. Sisk has traveled in parts of the world where you've, you've been able to order or get these kinds of things from other parts of the world. And you think all these little gods and trinkets are doing you good, but they're not doing you good. They're what's making you sick. If you can get all this out of your house, we believe God will honor that and help you to be well. Well, you know, it's a pretty tough thing when she spent so many thousands of dollars on all these little things. Some of them were gold, different things. But she said, I'll get rid of them. And she got rid of them. And you know what else? You know, don't you? She got well. She got well. I'm saying to you, people are caught up in a world of strange gods and idol gods. But God's people, God's people are not to do that. God's people are to worship the Lord. The Bible says in Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 2, you shall keep my Sabbath. In other words, we're to remember the Lord's day. Do you know we need to get back in the Bible and get back to building our lives on the Bible? and have a good sermon to our church and to all of our people that can be given out to other people <coughs> on what it means to honor the Lord on the Lord's day. When I first came here as the pastor of our church, I had some people go into a state of shock. Good people, good people. But I said to them, you'll never teach a Sunday school class in this church. And you'll never have a place of honored service in this church if you play organized ball on the Lord's day. Because we're going to draw the line on honoring the Lord's day. Well, the world has forgotten the Lord's day. Most people you know have forgotten the Lord's day. Every day is a Lord's day because it's a gift from God. But there's one day that is the Lord's day. You may think I'm foolish. You may think this is legalistic. I really don't care what you think. But we have hundreds of young people here. And since we started the college in 1991, we tell them you don't play ball on the Lord's Day. They don't even go out and pass the football on the Lord's Day. We honor the Lord's Day. I think we ought to give more attention to where we go and where we don't go and what we do on the Lord's Day to honor the Sabbath. And we fail, we can't keep, it, can't keep it perfectly like we should, but we ought to honor the Lord's day. This is what the Lord's people do. And the Bible says that they should worship in reverence. Notice in verse 2, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. You see, if, you, if you've created a space for worship, 
It may be a building somewhere. It's the only place you got, but you, you sanctified it. You set it aside for worship. Then the worship that goes on in there ought to be in reverence. This is something God's people believe because they come to worship the God of heaven and earth, the only true God. I am the Lord, thy God. And he says, we're to worship him, we're to honor the Lord's day, and to worship him in reverence, in reverence. That's what God's people do. The people of God honor the Lord's day, and the people of God worship the Lord in reverence. Let me give you something else so you can give it to your people. The people of God rear their children differently than other people. Now, I don't know how many thousands of babies are born near you. I don't know what the population of your area happens to be. And I don't know how many children your folks have. But when God gives a Christian, one of his people, one of the Lord's people, a child, that person who is one of the Lord's people should determine that child is going to be reared different than it may be reared in a family that's not the Lord's people. Just settle it down. Is there any difference? Is there any difference between a family that's a part of the Lord's people and a family that's not a part of the Lord's people? You teach your children differently. Teach your children to pray. Teach your children the Word of God. Teach your children Bible memory. Teaching your children gratitude, teaching your children honor the Lord and the mutual respect and those types of things. But here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, just find it for yourself. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Bible says in verse 1 Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that you might do them in the land whether you should go to possess it. That thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son all the days of thy life and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore Israel and observe to do it that it may be well with thee and that ye may increase mightily as the Lord God of your fathers hath promised you in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, our God. The Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto their children, unto thy children. And shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. And so God says we are to seize these golden moments in rearing our children. I've got a little booklet about that. 
Don't I? Season the Golden Moments. Maybe some of these people listening would like to have a copy of it. If they'll email me and ask me for the children's book on Golden Moments. It's just a booklet on the gold season the Golden Moments. I'll send it to them. But when my wife and I were blessed with children, we have two boys, six grandchildren, and about to have our first grandchild, our great-grandchild, thank God. And uh, my granddaughter is expecting a baby, uh, Madison, praying for her and praying for her health. But anyway, when our first baby came along, my wife said, we're going to read the Bible to our children. I said, well, how do you plan to do that? She said, we're going to read every word of the Bible to our children. And so she developed a plan. We kept and we stayed with it. We, there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. We had a little boy. Well, I had a little boy walk up to me Sunday. He's got a Bible quiz thing they're doing in his Sunday school. He says, Pastor, one of the questions is how many chapters in the Bible? How many chapters? I said, there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Evidently, that was a question he was asked, so he wrote it down. But now you think about that. How are you going to read 1,189 chapters in the Bible? How are you going to read every word? So Evelyn said, we're going to get up, get dressed, get ready to go with nothing left to be done, no food to be eaten, no bed to be made, nothing. And still a half an hour before we have to go out the door. And believe it or not, my dear wife did that. Our kids were taught to get out of bed, to make up their bed before they left their room, to come to the meal, to eat, to pray, and to get dressed, get all their school things together. And even before they went to school, the little boys to come into a room. We came into a room. We sat together, and I read one chapter from the Bible. It was a long chapter. Maybe I took two days to read it. If it was a short chapter, maybe I read two chapters. And then we prayed. Eventually, we prayed around the room. Each person prayed. And I tried to preach a little, but my wife stopped that, and I'm glad she did, because that wasn't what it was for. It was just to hear the Bible and to pray. And so we did that every day of their lives. When I was out of town traveling, she did it. And then at night, we read a Bible story to them before we put them to bed, prayed with them at the bed. But we did that until we'd read through every chapter in the Bible. And you know, they were in our homes for years and years and years. So you could imagine if there's 1189 chapters, we read through the Bible several times. Now, I thought that was the most daunting task when we first started. How in the world would we ever do such a thing? But we did. And then we started over and did it again. And then we started over and did it again. Think of it. Because God's people, the people of God, have a responsibility that other people don't have when it comes to children. We have responsibility to rear our children for the Lord. And where are they going to learn to tithe? Where are they going to learn to attend church? Where are they going to learn to give offerings? Where are they going to learn to pray? They learn it from their mothers and daddies who know the Lord. That's the great breakdown we have. You see, my heart breaks when I think about children raised without parents. My mother raised four children by herself for the most part. But 
we run Sunday school buses and we thank God for it. We go into every community in Knoxville and I thank God for it. And uh, statistically, statistically, they tell us that eight out of every 10 children have no father in the home. Uh, no, no father, meaning their biological father. There's sometimes other men in the home, but we've got to reach them. We have to step in and do sometimes and help parents do what parents should be doing on their own. But this is our greatest need. I may say to you, this is the greatest need we have in our nation. And who is responsible? The people of God. The people of God. Now, I have 40 or so of these things to tell you. But I've got to stop now. I'll have to pick it up again when, uh, when we're here together. I have some questions I want to share with you. Someone writes this question. I never want to cause people to doubt their salvation. I had someone do that to me during my impressionable time in my youth. And it took me many years to work through it. I do, however, want to be sure that in my church, I know what it really means to be a part of the people of God. Is there a balance you found when preaching on this subject. May I say that most people I know have gone through periods of doubt and had to come back to assurance. I'm sorry to say this. Some preachers preach to cause doubt. They, they like to say that I had this many people make professions of faith, but many people were just doubting and had to get it straightened out. Don't ever be one of those preachers. Leave people with assurance. Help them to come to the conclusion. It's really the Holy Spirit that brings them to the conclusion. I was led to Christ when I was nearly 14 years old, and then I followed the Lord in baptism. But I didn't surrender my life till I was 17. I believe there's a difference between, for most people, some people, when they're saved, surrender their life. I won't say they never do that, but most people never really make a surrender of their whole life to the Lord till sometime after their salvation. But for me, I surrendered my life to God when I was 17 years old. That seems like such a long time ago now. But it enabled me to give all of my adult life to God. All of it. That doesn't mean with perfection, but I was serving God at 17, preaching at 18, pastoring at 19, and it's been that way. And, you know, I had friends, good friends. You know, I played ball all my life as a boy and had my own little football team. We'd go from community to community, challenging people, took great joy in beating everybody. And, uh, and the older I get, the better I was. Man, I'm telling you, by this age, I am so great. It's unbelievable as far as how I was. Well, you know, as a matter of fact, an 83-year-old man contacted us yesterday and talked about my athletic exploits. So, you see, it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, I know some of your jealous hearts are having a hard time right now. You really are. But that was everything to me. It was something, it was something to me I didn't have, you know. It was a way to prove something. But God 
captured my heart. I decided I wouldn't play ball in college, had the opportunity to play ball. I remember being recruited and the coaches and sitting from the colleges sitting across from me at a meal. And I said to them, what do we do on, on the Lord's day? And they said, oh, we go game film and everything. And yeah, 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 yeah. And I said to them, I said, well, I, I don't want to do that. I want to go to church. And I want, and they thought well, I've got a religious fanatic or something. But I really wasn't. I thought that's what everybody did. I was on the television show for the University of Tennessee, and uh, Doug Dickey was then the coach. And I was on there, and he asked him my favorite running play on, on the Knoxville television station. I told him, oh, it was big stuff. So when the Lord captured my heart in my teens, there were some severe things that brought that about. And uh, I thought, well, if, if you can really be this out for the Lord, I haven't been this way, but I thought I really wasn't saved till now. I even told my pastor at the time, I probably need to be baptized because I think I just got saved. But that was not right. I was even baptized a second time. I wasn't really baptized. I just got a little quick bath. But the fact of the matter is, um, I was confused. And there's a lot of people confused. Work out your own salvation. You see, what has to happen with people, you can't get saved for somebody else. You can't convince someone else that they're saved. Just give them the truth and let them make those decisions and in their heart come to those conclusions. I am a child of God. Once you come to that personal conclusion that you're a child of God, that you are part of the people of God, once you come there yourself, that's the greatest thing that's going to ever happen. And that's my advice to you. Good verse on assurance, sure. Everlasting life, sure. But uh, it's got to be a personal thing. You can't force anyone else to be a Christian. You can't force anyone else to live the Christian life. It's got to come to you personally. Another question, what is the best way to help carnal Christians grow? Hmm. Doesn't every pastor wish he could answer that question? <laughs> yeah. Carnal Christians. Some people believe there is no such thing as a carnal Christian. But carnal Christians grow. Christ has to enlarge. John the Baptist said of Jesus, he must increase. I must decrease. So what it is, Christ must crowd the carnality out. I wish I could give all of you a copy of um, a little book, Crowded to Christ. Crowded to Christ. But anyway, I wish you'd read the little book I've republished that's a classic on When Did You Die? Or read the little book preached as a letter, given as a letter in this in 1667 on um, on on life of God to the soul of man the life of God the soul of man it, it, it's a spiritual thing that Jesus Christ I mean how do you break any habit look I grew up in a gambler's home my father was a smoker he wasn't a drinker my mother was a drinker my mother was a smoker and my mother wasn't the cursor my father was, but my father was a cursor. 
And uh, I learned all of that. I learned every bit of it. I remember when a, when a girl, you heard my story, I was putting on a putt puff golf course. I like to tell it because it's true and it helped me. I was putting at a golf cut putt putt golf. I missed a shot and I let out an oath. And this little old girl who was a cheerleader on the football team came running up to me and got right in my face. Yeah, I'm, well, that's a figure of speech, getting your face. I mean, in my face. You know, she and I were breathing the same oxygen near and just right in my face. And she said, I thought you were a Christian. Man, she was on me. I still feel the heat of that right now. And she said, Christians don't say what you just said. I didn't say a word. I didn't try to make an excuse. I knew she was right. So I walked quietly over to the little place where you turn in your club. And of course, I'm thinking about that little place right now. And the game wasn't finished, but I was finished. And I put my club in the right place, gave him the ball. I walked out to my car. And I got in the car by myself, closed the doors. And I put my head on the steering wheel and I wept like a baby. I still remember it as if it were just happening this morning. And I said, dear God, I belong to you. I'm a Christian. I am truly a Christian. I've been saved. And I know these things shouldn't come out of my mouth. Please help me. Lord, please help me to never speak like that. Even a word, even a word like that again, as long as I live. That was a life-changing moment. I feel like some of you have been in that car with me. You, you hear me, don't you? You see, Christ arose within me. That's the only thing you deal with that deals with carnality. One thing I would ask, the next question, the Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Does being a member and, and watching the live stream I guess watching our live stream counts, but no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's like the radio preacher said, you know, you ought to pay your tithe, except if you want to give it to the radio program. But anyway, that's not true, by the way. And uh, I'm just saying, if you can get there, get there. If you can't get there, you can't get there. But you better know what can't means. You know, you ought to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as a matter of some is. I got another question here. How do you deal with someone you have confronted who is causing problems in the church but continues to sow discord? I'd say just get a small group together and bring them in and ask them, and ask them so all right, if you pray for them and then pray for them to die. No, uh, no, no, just speak to people like the Bible says. Just speak to people. Tell them to break in your heart and they're hindering the Lord's work. Um, you know, that's part of what the Bible does. The word of God teaches us salvation, teaches doctrine, reproves us, corrects us, instructs us in righteousness. You're going to have to deal with all your life. I laugh sometimes when I hear people think, people think after all these years and pastor a church all these years and pastor in this church all these years, I don't have any problem people. 
But you know, I got a 50 page letter from a person the other day. Can you imagine how long it took somebody to write 50 pages? Can you imagine? And I did something very foolish. I read every word of it. I'm having such a hard time getting over some of it. And they accomplish exactly what they want to accomplish. They discouraged me. And I said, Lord, help me. Help me. I never read anonymous letters, but this wasn't, this wasn't an anonymous letter. It was a very hurting person. And I wrote him a letter. I wrote him a letter back, one page, two or three paragraphs. I said, I'm so sorry that your heart's been broken. I'm so sorry about what you've gone through. But the Lord can give you victory, but you've got to trust him for it. You know, we make such complicated things out of things when really we ought to be dealing with it so simply. It's either Jesus or it isn't Jesus. It's either letting him arise or not. It's either doing it for him or not doing it for him. And you know, the strange thing, you have to learn that over and over and over. Here I am, a young man. And I'm having to learn it. And when I grow old, I'll have to learn it again. And learn it again, learn it again. No doubt about it. Listen, don't let me leave you without this. Who are the people of God? Who are the people of God? They're the people that God looks down upon and wants to see what they do. And he responds to what they do. He may change your whole country because of what the people of God in your area do. He may change your whole community, your family, your school, your workplace, just because of what the people of God do. Because there is a God who is almighty, who looks at those people who belong to him, and he acts. Can you imagine? We have such power to move the mighty arm of God. That's the power God's given his people. I'll read it to you the next time we're together, if I can. If my people which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, heal their land. That's what God said to his people, the people of God. I love you. Good to be with you today. Hope you're encouraged. I hope you're encouraged just to think about, I am part of the people of God. I hope you rally your people to be the people of God. I hope the people of God start moving forward, do something mighty for the Lord. We're having a good time serving Jesus, aren't we? Good. And we're going to see him soon, I believe. God bless you. Pray for, pray for my friend, Talbert Moore. Talbert Moore has got just days, maybe moments to live. He's in his 90s. He's served God faithfully. A mighty preacher of the gospel. Great pastor's heart, missionary heart in the Atlanta, Georgia area. And a sweet, precious man. Pray for him. His family's by his side. Pray for him. Brother Talbert Moore. Will you do that? Heavenly Father, bless the people who are watching today. Help us to be encouraged because we're your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. God bless you. How time flies. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Baptist Friends Podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing today. And join us next time as we continue to gather around truth, friendship, 
and world evangelism.